I'm looking at my row and I'm going, every single one of you, I know your answer is you like to serve more than be served. Um, we are in the book of Romans chapter six. So if you've got a Bible, please turn there. We're going to be camped out there the whole day. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the front of your seat in front of you. If there's not one near you, ask someone, there'll be one around them. Over the last couple months, we have been slowly working through the book of Romans because it's dense. This is like steak and we've been having to take small bites and chew to get the nourishment out of there. The first four chapters of Romans, Paul is making one point and one point only. And that point is, although we come from different backgrounds, Jews, Gentiles, some of us are following God with all of our hearts, others of us are not following at all, every single one of us has fallen short of God's righteous standards. Every single one of us, regardless of whether or not we are trying to adhere to the law that he has laid down, has stumbled in it in one point or another, and every single one of us deserves God's wrath. However, that's not the end of the story because what we were unable to do for ourselves, Jesus Christ has done for us. When he went to the cross and he died in our place, his blood covered ours, his perfect life covered ours. So when we stand at the judgment seat of God on that day of judgment and have to give an account for everything we've done, both our secret life as well as our public life, he will declare us, although we are guilty by our, by our actions, because of what he's done, he will say, you are no longer held according to the law to be guilty. You are free. Now come and enter into eternity with me. That's the good news, that our sins ultimately don't get the last word, that what he has done on the cross gets the last word. However, this then raises the question of, well, how now shall we live if we have been saved by his grace and we were made right in the eyes of the law? So how do we live now in light of that? And then he spends chapters five through chapter eight really exploring that. The last two weeks, we broke up chapter five into two sections because there was so much there. But the heart of chapter five really gets at, hey, listen, because of what Jesus has done, we no longer need to live in fear of God and his wrath. Instead, we can come into his presence as a child comes into the presence of their father with peace, shalom, a sense of overall well-being, that our identity and our standing with God is not dependent upon our effort, but, because, but upon what Jesus has done for us. Furthermore, we don't, we don't live with a, a grace that has been given to us at one point when we converted, and then at that point we have to kind of live up to it the rest of our lives. We live in a perpetual state of grace. It's the only way that we can even stand at all, is this ongoing grace. And so, we don't live under the law, we live under grace, which then raises a question. Well, if we don't live under the law, but we live under grace, and every time we mess up, what Lee talked about last week, what, what Paul points out there at the end of chapter 5 is, every time we mess up, and we will mess up, there is grace that is sufficient to cover even that. So every time we stumble, there is grace there to catch our fall and to help us stand back up, which then brings up the question, well, man, if I keep stumbling and there's more and more grace, maybe I should just keep stumbling so that God's grace can abound. And that is the mindset that Paul addresses now in Romans chapter six. So what we're going to do is what we've done in weeks past. We're going to read the whole chapter. Then we're going to go back step by step, verse by verse and see what it's actually saying. What shall we say then? 
Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if you've been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law. But under grace, what then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. He's just trying to help us understand what he means with this analogy of slavery. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A lot there. And so we're going to dive in. And we're going to go quickly, but here's the real heartbeat. If we were to try to wrap our arms around the whole chapter and what Paul is saying here, there's two main questions that he's wrestling with. Both questions are similar, although they, they differ slightly in their focus. The first question is, is kind of flowing out of the last two verses of Romans chapter 5 that talked about the fact that the law was given so that we would be aware of our brokenness, but that grace is always enough to to sufficiently cover it. And he says, well, then shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, so that God is more glorified by how much grace he gets to pour out on us? And the second one flows out of his conversation here in verse 14 when he says, sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. And he goes, well, then should we sin because we're no longer under the law but under grace? Like, does it really matter how we live our lives? And those are the two main questions that he's really discussing. 
And his answer for both of them are an ardent, absolutely not. No, of course not. What I want to do this morning, though, is I really want to delve into why he says no, the heartbeat behind it. So let's begin with that first question. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have new life. Paul points to the illustration of baptism to really focus the light on what happens to us when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. When we say, Jesus, I want you to have my life. Come into me because, quite honestly, I can't be the captain of my own ship anymore. I'm aware of the carnage that I've created, and I desperately need you to be the Savior and the Lord of my life. When we invite him in, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ's death, the death that he died on the cross to atone for our sins. We're saying, that death I am accepting is my death. You died for me, and so by faith I take hold of that trusting that your sacrifice covers my sins, covers my shortfall. And so we identify with his death, but then we also identify with his resurrection from the dead three days later when he came out of the tomb, triumphing over the, cross, or triumphing over the grave, triumphing over death, saying sin no longer has mastery over me. Not that he ever gave in to sin. But I have conquered sin. And I am proving it by the fact that I have come back from the dead declaring that my God, God, is bigger than anything that we will encounter in this world. And when we identify with Christ's death, we also identify with being raised from the dead. And so baptism is the picture that we use in our community and in the Christian community across the board to remind us of that. When we go under the water, it is an identification with Christ's death and burial. And when we come up out of the water, it's an identification of Christ being raised from the dead, that we are raised as new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. It's simply a picture of what takes place in our hearts. There's nothing magical about baptism, but it's a public declaration of an internal decision, the same way that me wearing this wedding ring does not make me married, but it's a public declaration of something that is true and both legally and spiritually about my wife and I. I am no longer my own. I was bought at a price. And boy, is she paying every day for that. <laughs> Eleven years, that poor girl deserves an award. Okay, okay, thank you. So he goes on, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now I need to stop there for a second. Because when I read that, you know what that sounds to me like? It sounds like Paul is suggesting that when I identify with Christ's death and burial, that I should no longer feel any temptation towards sin. That because he has died for me and I have been covered by his blood, I should no longer have any desire to run back to the things that have controlled my life for a good portion of my life. But may I be the first to say that that's not the case with me. I have given my heart to Jesus. 
I have been baptized, and yet I still find myself struggling with my sin nature. I suspect I'm not the only one. But it's interesting because there was actually a a commentator I read that said, a dead man can safely be said to be immune to the power of sin. And I go, well, that sounds great in theory, but in practice, that just hasn't been the case for me. Nor do I suspect... I I truly believe that's not what Paul is saying because look at verse 11 for a moment here. Paul says in verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. If he truly believed that when we, are dead, uh, that when we identify with Christ's death and burial, that our sin nature ceases to have any control over our lives, then it would be a moot point to say, hey, don't run back to that stuff. Hey, avoid that. Give your heart fully to God. So obviously he recognizes the case that our sin nature doesn't simply cease to exist when we give our hearts to Jesus. So then the question becomes, well, what is he saying here? What is he insinuating? I think the best interpretation of what he's saying there is simply what he's been saying throughout the entire book of Romans so far. What we have been unable to do, namely to make ourselves righteous, In the eyes of the law, through our own effort, Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. He has justified us in the eyes of the law by his death. When in verse verse eight, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ was raised from the dead and he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. And he didn't just die for some sin he was carrying around. He was sinless. He died for our sin. He died to cover our sin, to atone for our mistakes. And he did it once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And when we identify with him, we say, I have been freed from the shackles that sin has had over me, and I have been released to live for God. Does that make sense? It's a a slight tweaking of our reading of that, of of our natural understanding of it, but it makes all the difference in the world. Because the reality is, what Jesus did on the cross justified us once and for all. But all of us are in a process of sanctification. They're in a process of being set apart. And thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit within us to begin working in that. And it is a lifelong process, not something that happens immediately. So we are not ceasing to have... Basically to say, if you recognize that there is still a part of you that hungers to run back to slavery, that's normal. And Paul recognizes that. But he is declaring, this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now let's live like it. Here is the indicative. This is who you are. Now let's talk about the imperative. This is what you need to do in response to that. And he's going to do that a couple of times. He's going to do it again as we get into the next section. So he sums all of this up in verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. You no longer have to try to live under this umbrella of, these are the things you have to live up to, which none of us could, by the way, which is why God came and 
sent Jesus to die for us so that we could be saved by grace, not by works, so that nobody can boast. And since we're no longer under the, under the law, we're under grace, then somebody might say, well, wait, does that mean I can just live any way I want, right? Can I just then do anything I want because I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under grace. Verse 15, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves as slaves, or I'm sorry, when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? When you give yourself habitually to something, eventually that thing becomes your master that you submit your life to. I I experienced this uh, when I was in college. I had been playing water polo, and after my freshman year, I just went, this is just not where I feel like I want to invest my time here in college. And so I quit. I was a big boy at the time, uh, about 280 pounds. I'd been working out like six hours a day. I was a large individual. Me and a Speedo, imagine like a Bartlett pair with a rubber band wrapped around me. Now get that visual out of your mind. And I remember when I quit playing water polo after my freshman year, somebody goes, you know who you remind me of? A young Chris Farley. I'm like, thanks, man. That really makes me feel good. Right? And I realized I have a choice at this point. I can either continue to live how I've been living, which is I, I, I do a lot of physical stuff, but I'm also eating whatever I want to eat, or I can radically change my lifestyle. And I decided to radically change my lifestyle. I started exercising. And it wasn't something I wanted to do. It's something I kind of felt like, oh, i got to do this. So I started exercising, even though I didn't have to anymore for practice. I started watching what I ate, really limiting my calories, limiting my saturated fat, all that kind of stuff. And at first, it was really hard. But as I began to see a little bit of the results, as a, little, a couple of the pounds started to shed off of there, and I started to have a little bit more, this is working. Then I started pouring a little bit more of myself and a little bit more of myself into that. And what I found happened is at some point during that first year, I reached a tipping point where I went from being in control of my diet and my exercise regimen to allowing my diet and my exercise regimen to be controlling me. I found that it began to dictate what I did with my time and who I could do it with. When my friends were like, hey, we're going to go hang out. I'm like, I got to go to the gym. I can't go hang out with you. Hey, we're going to go get pizza. I'm not going to put that food in my mouth. That's gross. I'm going to have salad, so I can't go with you. And I would literally say no to relationships, the very relationships I was hoping to be acceptable by the way I looked in, in, you know, all that. And I said no to those things. My exercise and diet regimen became my master. And Paul's saying the same thing. Whatever you give yourself to obey, whatever you habitually get into, will ultimately become the master of your life. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Because before Jesus Christ came, we didn't have a choice in the matter. Every single one of us, from Adam and Eve on down, were enslaved to sin. And it didn't matter how righteous you tried to be, We are always going to be enslaved to sin. That was the only master we would ever have. But God was not content to allow that to be our reality. And so he sent Jesus to die for us. And Jesus' death on the cross broke the grip that sin has on our life as our master and gave us a choice. In a lot of ways, Jesus dying on the cross was tantamount to God coming through Moses and saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said no. And so God made 
Pharaoh let his people go. He broke the back of Pharaoh and ultimately led his people out into the wilderness. Follow me. And they did. They had been brought from slavery to freedom. But as they stood in the wilderness, they were at a junction. And they looked back and they saw the life that they had and it looked comfortable in many ways because it was familiar. Back there we had pots of meat. Here in the wilderness, we don't even know what we're going to eat. We have to trust God to provide it every morning and and quail at night. And where are we going to get our water? And where are we going? And even the promised land, you're promising, there's giants there. So what do we do? Do we run back to the life we knew? Or do we run forward and follow our God as he leads us step by step through this wilderness towards the promised land that he says is there, but we can't see? And that's the invitation that each of us finds ourselves in. Paul is saying now because of what Jesus did on the cross, he has broken the bonds that held you in slavery. And now you are at a juncture. You need, to, you need to decide for yourself, who are you going to worship? Who are you going to serve? Because everybody is going to worship, everybody's going to worship somebody. Right? We all worship somebody. The question is, who are you going to worship? Who are you going to serve? Paul gives us two illustrations or two examples of who we could serve. Your slaves are the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, we know this taskmaster. We know this one who has had control over our lives for much of our lives. We know the kind of stuff that this taskmaster, we might call it our sin nature, we may call it our flesh, we may call it Satan, whatever term you want to put on this taskmaster, we got a really vivid picture of what this taskmaster's job was last week when we watched that video. Of that guy being forced by the guard to run around a track when his body is giving out and he does not have it in him to do it. And as he stumbles and falls on the ground, the guard comes up over him and says, you have failed. You're a failure. And then he begins to beat him in the midst of his failure. And that's what our enemy loves to do to us. He tempts us to things. He says, this will give you life. This is where you will find your identity. This is what will make you valuable. And we run at it and we will inevitably stumble. And when we stumble, he's right there to accuse us and say, you've failed. You have fallen short. You are a failure. That's one taskmaster. Or suddenly for the first time in history, we have an option for a second one. And that is we can choose to follow God. We can choose to submit our lives to him and say, I will follow you wherever you lead. Even if I don't see where you're headed, even if I don't believe that you can overcome these giants in the land that you're promising to give us? Even if I don't know where my next meal is going to come from, I'm going to follow you. Jesus said, follow me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my teaching upon you, because my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you come to me, you will find rest for your weary souls. That's the invitation to run back to our taskmasters that we have served for so much of our lives, whom Jesus died to free us from, or to turn our eyes to the one who loved us enough that he died in our place 
and to follow him. Paul says in verse 17, Thanks be to God that though we used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have been made slaves of righteousness. So again, this is the indicative. He's saying what we are kind of in the grand picture. This is what you are. Through Jesus, you are freed from sin and now you get to be a slave for righteousness. But he moves right from there into the imperative. This is what you are, so now this is what you do in response. Second half of verse 19, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness that leads to holiness. Just as you used to submit to your flesh, now submit to the spirit that God is giving you because we recognize that you can't do this by your own strength. We recognize that you cannot be holy as your Father is holy by your own sheer grit and determination. Thanks be to God that he recognizes that. And he gives us his Holy Spirit. Paul's going to talk about the Spirit's influence on our lives in chapter 8. So we're not there yet, but we're getting there. It says in verse 20, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. You lived any way that your flesh told you to live. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Think about that for a moment. Back before you recognized Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you lived any way that you wanted to live, consider for a moment the fruit of that lifestyle. I can tell you for myself, every time that I gave myself over to it, and even today, whenever I find myself going back to the things that my old taskmaster calls me to, I find shame. I find just like Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit, this tendency to want to hide myself and cover my shame from the people that are closest to me. I find myself wanting to hide myself from God, almost pulling away like there's been a wedge that's been driven between my father and myself. I find myself enslaved. The more and more I give over to it, the more and more it begins to control me. So what benefit did you reap at the time from those things that you're now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the benefit you reap ultimately leads leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we give ourselves over to our old taskmaster and submit our lives to him, we will find shame, guilt, broken marriages, broken relationships, addiction lies down that path. And ultimately, death, not just physical, but eternal separation from our Father lies down that path. But if we are willing to accept the gift of grace that God has given us, it's a gift. A wage is something you earn. A gift is something that is freely given irrespective of whether or not it's deserved. Let us not forget that grace is a gift. It's not something that we earned. It's not something we could ever earn. It's not something that after it's been given, we now need to make up for to earn it. It is simply a gift from our loving Father in heaven who desires more than anything relationship with us. And we are invited to rest in it. Now here's the point that Paul's been making the whole way through. If I'm going to sum this whole thing up, I'll probably say this. 
We have been saved by grace, not by any effort on our own part, not by anything that we have done. If I, if I were to bring that ladder back out here that represented the law, our tendency is to think that this ladder is what we need to climb in order to earn God's righteousness. That was never the intention of the, of the law. The law was never intended to be a ladder that we climbed in order to earn our righteousness. Rather, the law was given to shine a spotlight on our desperate brokenness and our tremendous need for a savior. The analogy we've been using throughout Romans is that it's kind of like the x-ray machine you go to at the dentist's office. It, It shows you the cavities. It doesn't heal the cavities in any way. But it shows you the cavities so you will recognize just how desperately you need to see the dentist. And the law was given to shine a spotlight on our internal spiritual cavities so that we would recognize how desperately we needed a savior. And we would run into his arms. And the good news is that he is there with open arms, accepting us and saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, you who are beaten down by this world and by your old taskmaster. Come to me because I have bought you out of, of bondage. I have invited you into life that is truly life. And this life doesn't have to begin on the other side of the grave. This life begins the moment you accept me as your savior and as your Lord and you begin to follow me. But if I'm being perfectly honest with you, as much as intellectually and even in my heart, I want to say, Jesus, I choose you and I will follow you 100%. There is a part of me that simply does not want to submit all of me. There is a part of me that when I'm being Even in my baptism mind of saying I have died with Christ and I have now been resurrected so that I can live a new life for God, there's a part of me that goes, I don't want to fully give all of me away. I want to retain a little bit of ownership. Probably the best picture I can give you is found from the 15th century. A guy named Ivan the Great was the Tsar of Russia. He was one of the most successful military strategist of his generation. And he had put Russia on the map. They were beginning to be an ascending powerhouse, taking over territories, solidifying the the, the territory they already had. He was the man. But his, his assistants, his associates said, Ivan, you're placing Russia in tremendous danger. Because as you are going and fighting these military battles, which you're brilliant at, You have no heir to the throne. So if you were killed, what happens to Russia? You need to find a wife and you need to have some children quickly. Ivan was a little bit too preoccupied with war, so he said, okay, you go find me a wife. (laughs) And so they looked for somebody who would be a suitable partner to Ivan, and they found her in the princess or the, the daughter of the king of Greece. Beautiful, smart, and it would be an amazing pairing of bringing these two powerful nations together. And Ivan said, awesome. And the king of Greece said, awesome, on one condition. We are a Christian nation. My family is Greek Orthodox. And we are not willing to allow you to marry our daughter unless you too are a Christ follower who has been baptized into the Greek Orthodox Church. Ivan said, no problem. There's probably a lot of you who are dating people who are like, no problem. Yeah, you want me to be a Christian? Sure, whatever. But what I appreciate about this story is he didn't just go and get baptized and get married. They actually sent a priest to Moscow to begin to disciple Ivan about what it meant to be a Christ follower. 
Basically, they allowed him to count the cost before he said, yes, I am willing to take Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. And after he went through that whole discipleship period, he still said, yes, I'm in. I am willing to be baptized, make Jesus Christ my Lord, and then marry one of his daughters. And so he goes with 500 of his most trusted troops to Greece. They're in Athens now. And there is one step left before he can get married. You need to be baptized. No problem. But all of his troops, these 500 of his most trusted troops, said, well, we want to follow our king anywhere he's going. So if he's going to say yes to Jesus Christ, we want to say yes to Jesus Christ. We want to be baptized with him. Okay, so now crash course. Let's go ahead and disciple 500 of these troops so they understand what they're saying yes to. Awesome. But there was one problem. The priests, as they were telling them about what it meant to follow Jesus Christ, said, you know, our God is a God of peace, not a God of warfare. He does not want you to simply spend your life wreaking havoc in order to take from weaker people. So if you truly want to follow Jesus, if you truly want to be part of the Greek Orthodox Church, then you need to be willing to submit every aspect of your life. And that means also ceasing to be a military conqueror. Basically giving up your identity as a warrior. And all of the troops said, I don't think that's a good idea. And Ivan said, I am not willing to lose my right arm. These 500 men, my crack troops, I'm not willing to allow that to happen. And then began a lot of conversations. How are we going to do this? This is what they finally arrived at. On the appointed day, 501 people, Ivan and his 500 troops, marched down. I borrowed this from somebody because, quite honestly, I can't be trusted with a sword. I would be doing all of my um, hedges with this. 500 troops led by Ivan the Great, resplendent in their military regalia with the pins uh, pinned all over their shirts and their swords at their side, walked down to the Mediterranean Sea, flanked by 501 priests, one for every single one of them. And they walked into the water, and as they got deeper and deeper, as they drew close to the water, they grabbed their swords, pulled them out, and raised them above their heads. And then the priests baptized every part of them except for their sword arms and their sword. 501 sword arms and their swords held above the water as 501 men gave their lives mostly to God in his service. We laugh. It's how ridiculous. But consider for a moment how often we do that. Consider for a moment how often we say, God, you can have all of me, except please, please, please don't ask me for this. You know, that's not the only time that that kind of thing happened. Jesus was going around with his disciples and there was a a young man who came up to him, said, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And he said, obey the law. He said, I've done it. From my very early youth, I have submitted myself to God. I have loved my neighbor as myself, and I've loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. But he recognized what this kid's sword arm was. He recognized the thing that kept this kid from giving fully his life to God. And so he said, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. And then come, follow me. Now, he doesn't say that to everybody. 
But in this kid's particular case, that was his idol. That was his rival God. That was his rival master. And so he gave him the same invitation he'd given all of his other disciples. Say goodbye to the things you found your identity in and follow me. For the 12 disciples, they had said, yes, I will give up everything and follow you. And this guy, he loved his money. He loved his stuff too much. And so he went away sad. And I wonder how many of us this morning are trying to play the game that the rich young ruler, the game that Ivan played, of saying, God, you can have every part of me but this. Yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior, but please don't ask me to give permission for you to control my money. I've worked too hard for it, and quite honestly, it is a safety net in case you don't show up, in case you're not as trustworthy. So please don't ask me what to do with my money. That's my area to control. Jesus, I want you to have all of me, but please don't try to have any say about what goes on between my two ears. Okay, my thought life is not my actions, so therefore leave that area alone. Jesus, I know that you love me and you've given everything for me, and so I submit my life to you, but please, please don't ask me to lay down my anger, because I have a right to that. I have been hurt, and I have a right to retribution. So don't ask me to forgive, even though you have forgiven me of so much. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life, but don't for a moment think that I am willing or able to give up my vice, my addiction. It's the only thing that gets me through the day. Please don't ask me for that. How many of us are walking through life saying, Jesus, you can have everything but this? Consider for a moment what it is that you're holding back. Consider what you are saying, yes, all of me, but this. Because that might be the very thing that keeps us from experiencing life that is truly life. That might be the one thing from our bondage in Israel or from in Egypt that we cannot let go of. And it keeps us from walking with confidence into the promised land. Because you better believe for the Israelites, when they left Egypt, they were excited to leave bondage. But as they went through the wilderness on the way to the promised land it got increasingly harder to follow him because more and more of the things that they had come to rest in and built their life on and their identities on began to fall away behind them. And the promised land was scary because they didn't have control. It was an unknown quantity. When they got to the edge and they looked in, they saw there were giants in the land and they could not rest in the belief that God was big enough to help them overcome those giants. And so of the 12 men that went in, Ten came back and said, we can't take them. We don't trust our God. Two of them said, yes, we can. And those were the only two men that entered into the promised land ultimately. Because ten were unwilling to let go of their ability to be in control, or at least the semblance of belief that they were in control. Ten men were terrified and were unwilling to follow their God where he led. So this morning, as we go into a time of worship, I'm going to invite Pete and the worship team up. I want this to be a time of response, not just a time where we sing a couple of songs and then take an offering and then go on with our regularly scheduled lives. What I want to invite you into this morning is an opportunity to respond to what we have just heard and to consider for a moment what is it that you have been holding back from God? What aspect of your life have you said you can have all of me except... 
And I want you to sit there and allow the Holy Spirit to speak into that and to open your eyes to that. And when you are aware of what that thing might be, then I want to invite you to respond by laying it down. Now, you might do that in your seat where you're at. Just going, God, help me. I trust you. Help me in my lack of trust to give this to you. Or you may want to come down here. There's lots of room if you want to kneel or lay down and just basically say, I submit all of me. Take all of me. Take even my sword arm. Take even my finances. Take even my thought life. Take even my vices. Take all of me. Because I choose to trust you. I will close with the invitation or the question that Joseph, one of the only two men of those 12 who went into the promised land and came back and said, yes, we believe we can take it. He said, choose this day who you will serve. Choose this day who you place your trust in. Are you going to place your trust in the master that you left, the one that Jesus Christ died for? or died to free you of? Or are you going to trust in me? Are you going to follow me regardless? It was Joshua, not Joseph. Yes, I'm aware. Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my household, although I'm going to stumble, although I'm going to fall, although there are going to be moments where I am tempted to pick my sword back up and start fighting for myself, As for me and my household, we will choose to serve the Lord. So now let's spend some time with our God, with our new master, saying, have all of me, every part of me. Here I am, Lord. So, Father, I pray that as we go into a time of response, you would open our eyes to the areas that we have been trying to hold back from you. The areas that we have tried to raise above the water of our baptism and said all of it but this. We want to follow you. Give us the courage to lay down even those areas where we have been trying to retain control so that you will be our new master and we will experience life that is truly life. Jesus, in your name, amen.